0: Welcome to In20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Meg lies back in her medical room as robot arms treat patches of her skin. Her severe cheekbones shine under hard light. Barely audible machines constantly buzz. The skincare robots will treat her entire epidermis, but they focus on the problem areas—her face, neck, upper chest, lower arms, hands, and feet. Each morning, she does this for an hour. The bots kill off aged skin cells, bioprint stem cells to replace the ones they burned away, and apply microbes engineered to help with scarless tissue regrowth. A drop of water could cover the area of skin regenerated each day, but by doing this daily, she has the skin of a 20-year-old. The treatment was as painful as getting a tattoo until last year, when magnetic resonance pain relief devices were installed on the bot arms. Now, magnetic waves can arrest electron flow in nerves and numb small regions of tissue. All she feels is a dull, buzzing feeling around the spots being worked on. She lies still and watches The Sims' sitcom. The Sims 24 simulates Hume so well that players record their games and edit them into sitcom-style shows. She likes the one where a straight male must pretend to be gay so he can live with three femmes in a sorority house near a pre-water crisis beach village. The male makes wisecracks and the femmes titter. The clumsy femme always gets stuck and needs help from the male to get unstuck. The serious femme always works on her dissertation. She yells at the others, but breaks down and cries, and the others try to make her feel better. The overly nice femme always tries to pamper everyone. Meg tries not to move as she watches the male Sim let the three femmes pick out colorful, shiny clothes he can wear to disco night. The serious femme isn't happy with the outfit he wears. She places a finger over her frown and shakes her head. He says, what? Do I look like a flower garden? The femmes titter. When the treatment is finished, she walks to what she calls her breakfast room, an immense living space with staggered floor levels and many of her priciest art pieces hung on the walls. Tupin and Pip lounge on a transformer sofa. Both are attractive beyond compare. They watch Vic's News on a billboard screen. They crane their necks to meet her eyes. Tupin stretches out an arm and says, sweetie, how was your morning routine? She says, fine. Pip wears a fluorescent orange tank top. He shouldn't dress like he's at a rave when he stays at her house. She'll have a word with him later, in private. One of her ballet bots brings an extra wide tray loaded with food. Most Humes would have a hard time carrying such a tray. The bot places it on a coffee table. Yeast egg omelets and cups of shroom calf release ribbons of steam. A visitor from the past would never guess the breakfast didn't come from chickens and coffee beans. Almost Adam for Adam, the yeast-grown eggs are the same as chicken-grown eggs, minus the shells, because who needs shells to make an omelet? Pip leans forward, grinning at her, and says, You won't believe the news. Meg walks around the couch and sits, her eyes on the TV. The screen shows clips of people running for cover as winds knock them about. A news anchor says, This super hurricane is predicted to travel all the way across North America and still have enough force to continue across the Pacific. As Meg reaches for a plate, she freezes. Her jaw drops and her teeth show as her lips draw open. Tupin and Pip lower their heads as they watch her. The reporter continues, Three more super hurricanes are developing over the oceans along with many normal size hurricanes and countless storms. Pip grabs a plate and says, Still want to go to Hawaii, Tupin? Tupin glances sideways at Pip. A flurry of digital artifacts takes out the broadcast. The screen turns gray. Meg says, What happened to my VIX news? Tupin air swipes. He says, I'll find another channel. Different feeds appear. One says, Streaming error. Another says, Stand by for servicing. He says, All the VIX news channels are down. Meg says, Try a different network. She stands and walks behind the couch. He says, Here's MSNBC. The screen shows buildings pulled apart and lifted into the sky. The next scene shows a family of six flying off a street and disappearing into torrents of rain. The third clip shows skyscrapers blowing over, crashing into each other, and spilling shattered debris to the winds. Clip after clip shows storms destroy bridges, factories, dams, and blocks of high-rises. Fields of solar panels fly up and away. Giant wind turbines blow over and cut gashes in the ground when they crash. The reporter says, Wind speeds are breaking records across the nation. Buildings, cars, and people are blowing away. Flooding is turning streets into raging rivers. Meg's assistant asks her, Meg, how are you? Are you in a safe place right now? Meg says, Yes, I am. Don't speak to me until I call for you. At the same time, Pip and Tupin speak to their assistants. Tupin says, I'm okay. Pip says, I can confirm. I'm safe. Meg listens to her house. It's built to silence all outside commotion. Is she imagining that tiny tremor? A clip shows a forest fire setting off canisters that explode, spreading fire retardant. In the next scene, ocean waves fall over a waterside neighborhood, and when the wave recedes, the houses and docks are gone. The reporter says, The oceans are releasing huge amounts of methane. Fires are breaking out. Winds fuel them and can spread them. The president has gone to the emergency operations center. Hold on a moment. The reporter stands with his hand to his ear. He says, The data collected from Peep's Link Connects bring us some tragic statistics. It breaks my heart to say this. We average three out of five people are unaccounted for. Please find shelter wherever you are. By all means, get undercover. Cars weigh one-third of what their gas-powered predecessors weighed. Don't take a car, it will blow away. Temperatures are rising and fluctuate. In Meg's AR, an image of a middle-aged man pops up with a notification sound. It's Tony Benback. What could the senator want? Meg answers, Tony, how are you? Through thick noise that sounds like a wind tunnel, the senator says, Meg, I'm so glad you answered. His voice strains with panic. She says, No, of course. He says, You won't believe this. You know I've been a lobbyist, a CEO at Weaponry Galactic. I've sat as an advisor for two presidents. She says, Yes, yes, sure. He says, I've been on the Resurgence Federation through the last three presidents. She remains silent. He says, If you don't know what that is, it's a list of thousands of core citizens and their families slated to shelter in underground township bunkers so we can rebuild the nation after a catastrophe. Still, she remains silent. She makes nail marks on her hand. He says... When I call the special number, all I'm getting is voicemail. The number I call for passage to my township is reaching the president's voicemail. It's a 20-digit number I can only call with a foldable I had assigned to the number. It isn't the kind of number that reaches a voicemail. Meg feels like she's falling backward. She grips the couch and says, Thank you for telling me. I must go. He blurts out, Can we stay with you? We are neighbors, after all. Meg marches across the living room, stepping up to a higher level twice. He says, Meg? Meg? Mrs. Cruz, are you there? All rocket flights are sold out. Canada is without power. When she turns the corner into the hall, she quietly says, Senator, I'm on a plane headed to the States right now. He says, well, turn around, turn around right now. I'm telling you, you'll get killed. She says, good luck, Senator. She hangs up. She leans against the wall near the Banksy, balls up a fist, and bites it hard. She says, assistant... If the Senator calls again, answer on my behalf, tell him I'm on another call and take a message. Assistant says, certainly. In the living room, Pip shouts, oh my God, the Statue of Liberty just blew over. Is that for real? Fear surfaces through his efforts at hilarity. Meg takes a moment. She rubs her palms over her pants to straighten them. Money burning, assets burning, fortune burning, property destroyed, production plants torn apart, the chart of all her assets going off a cliff. No one is being hurt by this more than her. Her vast fortune is stretched out across the globe and those storms are shredding it. Her abdomen shrinks into a hard stone. She feels dizzy. If a family loses a house, they can rebuild. She can't rebuild what's being destroyed today. She watches her two men on the couch and wants to kill them. Would her ballet bots do that for her? She walks back to the couch. Tupin cries out when he sees the look on her face. He stops himself and wills his face to a calm smile. Pip looks back and forth between Tupin and Meg. He sits up like he might spring off the couch. He says, Everything okay? Meg says, Boys, I miss my dogs. You two fly to New York and get them for me. The house, built more securely than Fort Knox, shudders. She didn't imagine it this time. The men stand. Tupin wants to protest. She can see him choking his words down. Six ballet bots in this room alone will come to her aid if anything crazy happens. She isn't even sure if her dogs are in her New York penthouse. Now that she thinks about it, she probably left them in Miami. Pip says, What copter should we take? Meg says, Oh, Pip, thank for yourself, for God's sake. Take the small one. You'll be landing on the roof. Dupin's face turns so red he looks sunburned. Is he glaring at her? She'll have to remember that. Nobody glares at her. Nobody. She sighs, and it comes out ragged to her surprise. Hurry now, I miss my babies. I need them to comfort me with this crazy weather. Hurry and come back. I'm sure you'll be back by tomorrow. They turn and walk out. The reporter says, You may have seen the videos of entire towns of people standing in their yards and allowing the winds to carry them away. We've confirmed, these are real videos. She watches as a clip shows about 30 people dressed like actors on a set of Little House on the Prairie raise their arms and shake them spasmodically. In one swift movement, they all fly up out of the shot, joined by a truck and two dogs. She sits down and says, Show me the boys leaving. An AR feed shows Tupin and Pip throwing clothes into packs. She says, "'Make sure they take a copter to my New York penthouse. Let me know if they try to do otherwise.' Assistant says, "'Okay,' the reporter says. "'Giantist deliveries have paused all 50 states. Storms have critically damaged major power and water facilities. Overcrowded hospitals are running on backup generators.' A ballet bot takes the breakfast dishes away. Meg walks down a hall and takes an elevator. After this storm passes, the world will be a different place. She'll need to hire people to help her patch together what remains of her empire. Did the president finish automating the military? Hopefully so. A text pops up in front of her. Tom, on the board of Foods International, says, The market has crashed. I recommend pausing all transactions immediately. Meg falls back and hits the wall. She shrieks, No! The elevator doors open, and she stumbles out on her bedroom floor. She says, Why didn't you tell me? Assistant says, You put me in do-not-disturb mode. She says, Do notify. The room seems to rush her when she steps forward. She says, Freeze all accounts. Assistant says, Okay. There are 7,040,022 attempts to transfer funds from your accounts. I'll pause them. I have a notice from earlier. She says, What is it? It says, Warning. Extremely dangerous weather conditions are developing in your location. A Cat 6 storm is headed your way and will arrive in 25 minutes. This storm will damage your house. Most likely, services you rely on will be interrupted afterward. I recommend leaving Earth. Your rocket is prepared. Also, Tupin and Pip are attempting to redirect their flight to a nearby airport. She says, let them. They're the least of her problems right now. The world will remember that she owns the largest business empire in all of history. Whoever rules after this, not Jackson she's willing to bet, will acknowledge that she owns all the shit she owns and will back her with his robot army. What feels like an earthquake passes through her house. She walks to the elevator and says, load the rocket with all the luggage on the list. Assistant says, the rocket pilot AI says weather conditions are too dangerous for launch. It recommends waiting until the storm passes. She says, prepare to launch anyway. Assistant says, it will not launch. It says the chances of making it to space is 2%. She says, launch anyway, open this goddamn elevator. Automated services always ratchet up the estimated likelihood of failure. Assistant says, Copter 5 has crashed. The rocket will not launch. One time she met someone who reprogrammed robots to kill so that their owners could commit suicide. Would Meg be able to get a hold of that person? And if so, could they bypass the rocket safety features? She says, take me to the bunker. The elevator door opens. The numbers count backward, eight, seven, six. After minus four, the numbers are replaced by two dashes. The elevator continues to drop, lower, lower, lower. She says, bring all my luggage to the bunker. Assistant says, okay, I'm starting shelter services in your bunker. Your house is going into lockdown and all bots are in sentry mode. Did Tupin really take Copter 5? That was her favorite copter. Was that like a last minute retaliation on his part? Rumbling startles her and she stares upward. The doors open and a Luton bot stands waiting for her. Her assistant says, your Luton bot comes with upkeep and troubleshooting skills for your survival bunker. I suggest you subscribe to other skills you may want your Lutonbot to have. She hates Lutonbots. The lights black out and the only sound, a gentle background hum, stops humming. With absolute zero light and absolute zero sound, she panics. She steps to spread her feet apart, bends her knees, and brings her fists up to chest level. The Lutonbot switches on a headlamp, and its light moves over the wall as it walks toward a doorway. With a loud click, the lights come back on. She says, "Assistant." What was that? Though she already has a good idea what it was. Assistant, are you there? A notification pops up. You are offline. Again, she shrieks. This time she draws the word out. No. All the questions she asks assistant brings up a rudimentary home screen with a few dozen items to click on. She clicks on settings and gets a menu. She hasn't seen one of these since the 40s. Air-tapping the back arrow, she returns to the home screen. She taps Call and then taps Stu Mulligan. A weird monotone beeping must mean the line is busy? Clicking on My Bunker opens another home screen-style layout with many options. She clicks on CCTV. Her view divides into six squares. She taps on one and a menu drops down. Items in the menu include Kitchen End Point of View, Roof Landing Pad W Facing, and Dry Pantry 1. She clicks on Master Bedroom. The square fills with a video stream of her bedroom, but the windows are shattered, the furniture is missing, and broken branches swirl around, ripping the carpet and leaving scrape marks on the walls. She gasps and presses her hands to her chest. In the bunker, a small couch sits against one wall. She walks over to it and sits. For the five other boxes, she chooses Rocket Bay 12, Room Landing Pad W, Kitchen E, First Floor Living Room S, and Whole Home POV from S. All streams show her beautiful house, pelted by objects large and small and drenched by sleet. Spinning debris breaks apart her kitchen cabinets. The stone countertops fall as each cabinet piece breaks apart and flies away. Someone once told her she had over a hundred humanoid robots and half as many canine robots in this home. The ones she sees in the feeds crash against walls or fly out the windows and disappear in the darkness. A menu under the six feeds includes a button that says Wall Screen, She clicks on it and looks up when the wall to her left lights up with the six feeds. With a downward swipe, she closes the AR screens her glasses produce. With an open mouth, she places trembling fingers to her face. What else is there to do but watch for the storm to end? She hugs herself and sits sideways, staring at the cam feeds. At seven in the evening, the lights dim to simulate day, night cycle. The light from the streams cast a glow over the windowless room. What she sees in the feeds doesn't look like her house anymore. The storm rages as strong as before. Meg hardly moves as she watches. Near midnight, the storm takes the roof off her house. All she does is raise one brow. She falls asleep on the couch. In the morning, the storm continues and about a third of her house is blown away. Two feeds are blank as the bedroom and landing deck cameras have blown away. She switches one feed to a rocket silo cam. Parts of the roof are missing off the silo. Sleet pours in, and the rocket sways. The bots never moved her luggage down here. With pain, she remembers Tupin and Pip. Were those their real names? Did they have family? Surely they left friends behind. Where were they from? Pip mentioned Twin Falls a few times. How long is this storm going to last? Using the AR interface with the wall screen, she painstakingly searches through menu after menu until she finds channels and clicks through them. An icky feeling comes over her as she remembers watching TV as a little girl and using a remote. Each channel renders box pattern static. Tears of frustration roll down her face. A week later, she's a nervous wreck. Her expression hangs as she scratches her arms and scalp. Sometimes she breaks into bitter laughter. Of the over 200 cam feeds around her home, only 12 remain. The feeds taunt her, but she refuses to turn them off. What if the storm clears as soon as she does that? She can pick meals for the Lutonbot to make, but the menu bored her when she glanced over it the first time. The bunker includes a swimming pool three meters wide and 20 meters long, but swimming doesn't interest her. She's mapped out in detail everything she'll do to save her businesses as soon as the storm clears. She'll leap into action and work tirelessly, running on little sleep to save her fortune, but all she can do now is sit and wait. Days later, searching through her OS, she notices my stasis. Did she go ahead with that option? Sure enough, when she walks down to the last door at the end of the main hall, she finds a room containing a stasis bed. It takes the rest of the day for her to familiarize herself with the stasis controls. She can go into stasis for as little as two and a half days and as long as a year. She can also go into stasis until a pre-chosen condition triggers the bed to wake her. The trigger conditions she can choose include the bunker detecting an emergency, the stasis bed detecting a medical problem if she gets a call from a chosen contact or if the internet comes back online. She showers, puts on a nightgown and opens the stasis bed lid. Stasis is like a deep sleep. The last time she went into stasis, a bot removed a tiny cancer from her brain. This time shouldn't be for very long. How long can a storm last? She takes one last look at the data gathered by weather sensors on her property. Wind speeds average 200 kilometers per hour. She sets the stasis wake-up trigger to normal wind speeds. An animation shows her how to put on the neck and armbands. The prompts ask her to remove her AR glasses and any jewelry. She sets her glasses on a small shelf adjacent to the bed and stretches out on what feels like jello under rubbery plastic. It takes a couple of seconds for the lid to close. She'll feel drowsiness and then abruptly wake up and the storm will have passed. After nights of little sleep, this is exactly what she needs. Watching the numbers, she counts backward. 10, 9, nine, eight, lights out. The first stage of stasis blows out her awareness like someone blowing out a candle. When Nabo first plays the experience, it seems like an ordinary world. His character doesn't have powers or abilities. The world is no more alluring or dangerous than the real world. Perhaps he can use the experience to wean himself off the fantastical game he's spent nearly every waking moment in for three years now. Point three seconds before he gets bored with the experience and leaves it, a crow lands on a stop sign and squawks at him. What the hell is up with that crow? What did Nabo do to make it mad? The crow takes flight and flies past an old femme at the side entrance of a house. The femme, small with age, struggles to pull a wire shopping basket up the steps. Her short, all gray hair blows in the wind. She looks like she may topple over. Nabo hurries over to her. He calls out, Can I help you? The femme shakes her head. No, I'm very busy. Leave me alone. A police officer walks up the sidewalk on the side Nabo stands on. The officer eyes Nabo with disdain. Nabo crosses the street and continues walking. He reaches a paned area and smells hot sweetbread just pulled from ovens. The time he sold himself to get the money to have radio frequency protein relays grown connected to his smell and taste nerve cells is paying off big time. In-game smells outperform real-life smells, no doubt. The Panaderia runs out of an add-on to a two-story house. A bell rings as he steps inside. Two glass door cabinets display bread. The counter is unhumed, but voices come through a doorway behind the counter. He's eager to try eating in VR, though he's heard that you have to be careful not to bite the inside of your mouth. With tongs, he takes a concha out of the display case. Some of the top flakes off as he places it on a tray. He taps the bell next to the register and it rings louder than he expected. A femme from the back steps up to the counter and says, Hola. She wears an orange apron and her hair is tucked up in a baseball cap. When he tries to pay, he finds he has no money on his card. The femme shrugs and says, pay me next time. Without knowing it, Nabo is already hooked. The experience is a simulation where everything is like real life, only just a little bit better in every way. Because Nabo is an extrovert, The game gives him 5% more chance encounters than he'd get in real life. When he looks for work, the game offers 5% more jobs he feels he has the aptitude for. He applies for a job at the old dam. With a 5% greater chance of getting it, he gets the job. One of his coworkers likes to bet on local sports and his other coworker likes to make odd observations. His coworkers like him 5% more. They find his jokes 5% funnier. He has a 5% advantage over any bet he makes. He loves his in-game job and can't figure out why, because it seems like a real-life job. No matter what risk and reward, no matter what task and payoff, Nabu is 5% more likely to win than in real life. That's all it takes. That's why some established wealthy families go on succeeding for generations. The next generation gets addicted to success when the odds are slightly more in their favor. He waits in lines for 5% less time. He gets 5% less junk mail. He encounters rudeness 5% less. If he goes out with a femme, she's 5% more likely to be someone he'd want to meet with a second time. 5% more femmes like him back. If he and she get intimate, there's a 5% greater chance both will orgasm, and there's a 5% better chance they'll orgasm at the same time. Salary is 5% higher. Rent is 5% cheaper. All these 5% add up to him feeling like an over-the-top winner. He's 100% more wanting to go into the experience than to go out in the real world. Sure, he's heard about the Moon Cannon program ending in The Great Dread. Seems like everyone he runs across feels helpless whether they're in denial about the climate or not. He gets off work early at the dam and walks home. Icicles hang from bare branches. Snow clings to steep rooftops. Each house hugs the mountainside. Lots of cars take Highway 276, and their headlights flash as they pass in the early dusk. In real life, he lies on the floor of an abandoned gas station bundled in five layers— Arizona can get cold in midwinter. His micro-movements control the game so well that he can walk, run, and dance in VR, and someone standing a few meters away from him in the real world couldn't tell he moves at all. His VR world is torn from him when something rolls him across the floor, knocking his headset off. Though he looks around, his brain isn't stitching the scene together for him. He tries to stand, but something pushes him down and rolls him against the wall. Objects hurl themselves at him. He has no idea where his headset is, but he only hears sounds from the game. He smacks his head with the palm of his hand and says, Emerge. Sound canceling turns off. Wailing, moaning, and whistling sounds rush in. In the dim light, furious winds stir everything in the room, including him. Muddy water floods the room, rising to his knees. A robot arm comes out of nowhere and hits his head. It's all he can do to hold his head and wait for the pain to diminish. Wind shoves him down. He gets a mouthful of ice-cold floodwater before sitting up on the floor. The roof shakes. Dust-coated glass in the windows shatter and stronger winds push him and everything else into a corner where he kicks and bucks to get out from under the garbage and above water. The bathroom door is right next to him. He pulls himself into it, pushes objects out of the way, and strains to shove the door closed. In total darkness, he stands in water that nearly reaches his waist. He's seen many videos where people are on a plane that is falling out of the sky and is about to crash. His current situation feels like that. The walls vibrate. The deafening sounds howl and scream in his ears. The water freezes his legs. Slipping, he climbs up on the counter. A voice he doesn't recognize says, Warning, you are offline. He starts making a low, guttural moan. Uh, uh. When he reaches to hug himself, a sharp pain tears his arm. Slowly, he feels his arm and finds the broken bottle lodged there. With a loud groan, he pulls it out. Warmth flows down the outside of his arm. His wakefulness succumbs to a sickly dizziness. In the crashing plane that never crashes, he pulls himself into a ball. Without his glasses or headset, there's no way he can check his canal link to see if he can get back online. Pull your shit together, man. You'll have a bad night, but it'll all work out as long as the building holds up. Try not to think. His hand covers the gash on his arm and he presses down. He strains to stop shaking so damn much. Many hours later, the tiniest amount of light leaks through a vent near the ceiling. Winds still ram into the building and shake it. He lost a lot of blood and feels half-present. Time and again, he panics, needing badly to go to work in the experience. He forgets it's just a game, if he can make it through the storm. A lot of veterans live in these parts and have some ability to give emergency medical aid. With a bone-dry voice, he says, Link, bring up menu. Link, read me my menu aloud. Nothing. He yells, cancel storm sounds. The howling continues. He lowers his cupped hand to the floodwater, scoops them up, and sniffs it. It smells like standing water that something died in. A migraine grows behind his forehead. Hold on. Wait out the storm. They'll drop bottled water all over the land for sure. AI will spot survivors and make the best plans. He throws back his head and screams, I'm so scared. Help me. Though he has no way of knowing how much time has passed, two days later, he opens his eyes and looks up at the tiniest glimmer of light through the vent. Does he still hear the wind? It still shakes him like a kid trying to shake a bug to death in a glass jar. His lips won't close and they bleed through cracks. He's nothing but a battery and he's about to run out of juice. Did that femme ever have his baby? He hopes they're safe. She probably left Arizona years ago. What does the baby look like? Does it look like him? That would be funny if it looked exactly like him and not like her at all. He sees a baby with a face like his and laughs. Yes, this is it. Wait, his brow bone mount has encrypted streaming. He croaks. Everyone, I love you. Be nice to animals. No, I mean it. My dog was the best. He knew me. He'd still be alive if this was 5% better. Exhausted, he stops. His head falls forward and hangs over his chest. His heart loses its rhythm and can't get it back. It flutters and grows quieter. His head jerks up and down. Inside his head, a sudden burst of synapses light up like three centuries of Christmas lights piled upon each other. All over the world, millions and millions of people find themselves in situations like nabos. They find pockets of safety but don't have power, internet, food, or water. Some try to go out in the storm and die. Some take their own lives. Most hang on until the time comes. Carlos and Janine met in high school and moved in together before they graduated. Now in their 30s, they look for places to live near Rocket Alley, Texas. They want some distance from the string of spaceports, hotels, malls, and amusement parks clustered around that area. Both introverts, they don't go out much. In San Antonio, they find Pioneer's Neighborhood Complex. Housing about 1,000 people, the single building covers three-by-three city blocks and stands 12 stories tall. It's not the biggest NC, but it's one of the most advanced. It'd need to be in order to attract people who work in the space industry. Tube lines can take Carlos to any of the spaceports in minutes. Most of the residents of Pioneer's NC are astronauts and their families, which is great because he and Janine now have a three-, five-, and six-year-old. The NC includes a top-quality survival bunker blended in with the rest of the building. What serves as an underground bunker also provides courts, gyms, pools, a shooting range, and a four-lane bowling alley sunlight gleams off San Antonio's newer buildings. Thousands of wind turbines in the surrounding area can be seen from within the city. They say crops and ranches used to dominate this land, but now forests of invasive plants encroach upon the city. They overtake the abandoned buildings and empty streets of ghost town neighborhoods. Genetically engineered plants designed to thrive in desert environments and released illegally take over any area of neglect. The vine-cactus hybrids climb walls and cover any car that remains parked too long. Dust moss turns the landscape gray-green. It loves to chew apart old concrete and eat up last-era roads. Old highway ramps are crumbled messes of green. Weave roads replace many of the old roads. They haven't found the biohacker group who spread the invasive plants, but now fast-growth palms and weeping grass ferns crop up in every yard. Carlos is slated to head to space in a week, so he takes his family to Padre Island to swim in the waves and build sandcastles. On the beach, he lounges on a folding chair under a canopy while Janine builds sand towers with Yuri, Neil, and May. Through his AR glasses, he watches a video about a trillionaire who wants to task the smartest AI with terraforming Venus, a gathering of many families cook burgers on portable hydrogen grills. A femme from the group walks up to Janine and says, We've got plenty of food. Y'all want to come over and join us? Janine lifts the brim on her sun hat and meekly says, "'Oh, no thank you.' The femme says, "'Well, you can always change your mind.' Carlos breathes a sigh of relief. His wife's introversion is the main ingredient in the glue that holds their marriage together. May frowns. Poor May. The only extrovert in a family of quiet people. The ground trembles and many look as a rocket in the distance begins its ascent, drawing a billowing trail over the bright blue. Two kids try to get a kite into the sky— They've been trying for an hour and look like they're about ready to give up. A cluster of teens sit together further down the beach. The breeze carries the song they play on portable speakers and the tune sounds familiar and not familiar to him. His head jumps back when his canal link buzzes and a pop-up says, alert, storm warning. This is an urgent weather advisory. The National Weather Service has issued a severe storm warning for your area. Please take immediate precautions to ensure your safety and the safety of your loved ones. The storm is anticipated to hit within the next 10 hours, bringing with it extreme winds, heavy rainfall, and potential flash flooding. Find cover immediately. He and Janine lock eyes as she gets the same message. He says, Janine, I think we should head back. She squints as she looks up at him and says, So soon? The kids love this. The Autono cab drives through the night with kids sleeping on the back seat. Carlos asks assistant to spin the front seats around so he and Janine can face the kids. They transition their seats to recline mode and hold hands. An unusual amount of traffic drives in the same direction. Stars twinkle in the clear black sky. Light leaks from Janine's glasses in the dark. Carlos can't hear the tires hum on the weave road but can feel minute vibrations. The skies fill with engine sounds. Through the sunroof, they see a fleet of two and four passenger planes. They look like antiques and probably don't have autopilot. At least 20 fly over with engines gunned, headed deeper inland. Janine sits up and says, Are we going to make it? He says, Assistant, will we make it? Tell us both. Assistant says, With current traffic conditions, you'll make it home in four hours. He reaches over and takes her arms. She says, I'm scared. Where'd the storm come from? I thought the storms over the oceans are too far out. They don't sleep much. With daybreak, they drive by groups of people who stand in yards. Many hold their arms up. They pass one group and moments later drive by another. Neil surprises them by saying, What are they doing, Mommy? Janine says, I'm not sure. Entering San Antonio, Carlos checks the news. All air travel, including rockets, is grounded. Would-be space travelers throw fits in the spaceports, demanding their rights. Carlos says, Assistant, call work. Hi, Don. Have you heard the news? What's that mean for us? Even our launch? Janine watches him. He says to her, my job is canceled. They receive a notification that says, all Pioneer Neighborhood Complex residents, please go to the basketball auditorium. The shelter meeting will start in 15 minutes. She says, we're going to be late. For the first time in years, traffic is a mess. The kids complain, we're moving so slow and why are there so many cars? Pedestrians carrying bags, packs, and luggage weave through stalled traffic to cross the street. Blimp drones all head west. When Carlos glances at Janine, she uses two fingers to push her lips up and make a smile. He laughs through his nose and keeps in mind not to show a worried face. He smiles and says, "Hey kids, want to play a game?" They bounce an augmented reality balloon to each other in a game of hot potato. After the car drops them off in the loading bay, bots take their luggage from the car. The kids wanna go home to the condo, but Carlos says, this is important. I think we should go right to the meeting. Holding Yuri, Janine looks unsure, but she nods. The sky is clear, but he feels a change in the air. Wearing sunscreen and beach clothes, they walk into the auditorium, 20 meters below ground. Over 200 people sit on bleachers, and a middle-aged man with muscular arms under a guayabera shirt stands speaking. Because Carlos and his family enter the meeting space, they can suddenly hear the speaker. Their links play the live mic in the speaker's link. No need for clunky PA systems. As they walk to the bleachers, the speaker says, Now that you're registered, you need to follow the notices. Make sure to watch the video on the survival bunker rules and best practices. Carlos and his family take seats in the stands only about a quarter of the residents have shown, and over half are children. The NC affairs leader, Les Navalny, stands on the court facing the audience. He says, you all have maps of what area of the bunker belongs to you and your family during emergency readiness periods. Carlos looks at his AR map. His family has a four meter by seven meter square and a racquetball court six levels down. He's seen this auditorium filled with all the residents, over a thousand people. The numbers today don't come close. Two crazed-looking adults and four children run into the auditorium, clothes soaking wet. The man with a beefy mug hollers, It's happening! We just saw the buildings around here get wiped off the map! Murmurs pass through the audience. Yuri, Neil, and May stare hard at their parents. Neil tries to speak and Carlos whispers, Hush! Beefy mug guy bounds up to Les and says, I've never seen anything like it. I thought it was a tsunami. Our condo is gone. Tears form in his eyes. More people come into the auditorium, running first and coming over to the bleachers. A stretcher bot led by a teen boy carries in a femme who lies on her back and holds a cold press to her eye. Some carry items they grabbed in haste like a pillow, a framed picture, and a bottle of wine. Janine stands and says, We've got to get our stuff. Some people who were here before the storm run toward the exit. Children cry, Others shout questions at Mug Guy. Les steps back and glances around as people panic. He says, Hold on! Hold on! Don't go up there! All the lights go out. A femme screams. Carlos touches his ear and says, Flashlight! A message pops up on his AR. Warning you are offline. Someone speaks in a foreign language. Something Carlos hasn't heard ever since everyone got instant dub. Egyptian, possibly? After a few seconds, the backup power supply comes on. Les announces, Everyone please, we need everyone to take a seat. His voice isn't broadcast anymore, and he's hard to hear. Adults air tap and shout, Assistant! Assistant! One guy slaps his ear, hoping it will restart his link. The stretcher bot carrying the fem stops following the boy. A luten bot carrying bags for a family stops in its tracks. It takes a minute before people remember that a deadly storm has arrived outside. Les notices a family heading for the exit and runs after them, shouting, Wait! Don't go up there! Of the 20 people on the NC Affairs Committee, only five are present. They talk in a circle and then separate to go into action. Two turn a room next to the auditorium into the control room. They set up a wall of CCTV monitors showing the destruction outside. Everyone in the auditorium can see the monitors through large interior windows. As it becomes clear the storm causes catastrophic conditions above ground, the nearly 300 people in the bunker find floor space to stake out their home turf, lay out beds, put up partitions, and get briefed on where to get food, water, shower, and other necessities. One family insists on rooming in one of the piano practice rooms. Even though it seems unfair that they get a private room, no one protests. What'll it matter when the storm ends? Janine sits with Yuri, Neil, and May on a puffer mattress in the tennis gym. Carlos connects the corner where two partitions meet. Twenty others, families, couples, and singles, also set up here. A femme wearing a dust-bitten motorcycle jacket that doesn't suit her enters the gym, looks around, and announces, "'Excuse me! We're looking for volunteers to search outside for survivors.' She fidgets as she stands. Carlos steps back. He puts his hand on Janine's shoulder and says, "'I'll be back.' I need to do this. Worry lines appear on her forehead, but she nods in agreement. In the elevator, Dorian, who will never be able to change her prep school look no matter what grunge wear she puts on, explains to Carlos, The CCTV show that lots of the rooms touching the outside of the building have been destroyed. The gardens on the roof are gone, but lots of the structure near the center of the building remains. She stares at him pleadingly as she speaks. This one seems clingy, he thinks to himself. He says... Did you see any survivors on the TVs? She says, We found what could be a child huddled in a corner in a restaurant. 30 volunteers gather in the basketball auditorium. Each has a chance to say what skills make them suited for joining the rescue party. Carlos says, I've gone on five space missions to troubleshoot robot fails. And I perform tasks for data farming and deep-sea desalination operations, so I have a lot of experience in extreme environments. Dorian and Les look at each other. Les says, Okay, yeah, you're part of the team. Seven in all board the elevator to the surface. All seven have worked in space. Dorian pulls a panel off the elevator wall to get to hard-button controls. Once the elevator moves, Les says, The elevator shafts will close if bad air is detected, like in the case of a chemical bomb. The elevator stops on the first floor, but the doors won't open. Les says, the doors won't open if sensors detect danger. That could be heat, fire, smoke. He pushes too. On the second floor, the doors open, and a rush of wind pushes them all against the back wall. Their ears pop. It's dark outside the elevator. Les says, we need to use the lights on the hard hats I gave you. It sounds like Niagara Falls flows beneath their feet. Carlos goes first, pushing his way into the hall. His helmet flies off and travels down the hall like a projectile. He hangs onto the doorway as his feet slip, and the wind tugs at him with surprising force. The walls shimmer with dampness. Pools of water move down the stone floor like swashes that climb ashore after a wave has landed. His fingers slide on the doorway. He shouts, I don't think it's safe like this. Les says, We need to, least. Carlos says, There's rope and harnesses in the rock climbing gym. I think we should use it to continue. Thirty minutes later, they return in harnesses linked together with rope. Carlos leads. Crawling, they move against the jet of air. They pass a robot rocking back and forth as it hangs onto a door handle with one gripper. Lighter than a hume, the wind completely lifts it off the floor and continually slams it into the wall. The elevators are in the mall in the center of the building on floors one through six. The team reaches a railing that looks out on an atrium from what had been skylights on the roof, all the way to a dining court on the first floor. It's hard to see, but vicious rain and winds surge above, and floodwaters move below. Large pieces of debris swirl in the open center. All kinds of things—car doors, blimp parts, trees, bodies. Carlos holds back a panicked flight when he realizes that if he holds his hand over the railing, one of those large objects will probably break it. Glass shards cover the floor. Piles of furniture, merchandise, and busted robots collect in recesses and corners. It's crazy to think this is the centermost part of the building. It can only get worse the closer they get to the outer wall. What are they doing out here? This is a big mistake. The others probably never saw a teammate go down. He once saw a co-worker crushed by a fallen crane. This time a strap holds his hard hat on, and a face shield saves his face from flying glass shards. This is stupid. He and his team don't know what they're dealing with here. Restaurant entrances circle the balcony around the atrium. He leads the others into the nearest restaurant. Inside, dead birds and other small objects ghost dance where wind swirls in pockets. He throws his arm up to block a broken broom that flies out of darkness. The booths have been rearranged or blown to pieces. Robot arms connected to tracks on the ceiling remain frozen, where they were when the power went out. One holds a flapping tray. Another holds a plate it was about to put in a busser tube at its side. The team calls out, Hello, anyone here? The wind sucks their words away. Carlos gains some confidence. After a few more restaurants absent of survivors, they come to a service hallway where the gusts are milder and they can walk upright even though the wind shoved them around. Carlos reaches for the push handle on the first door. Les shouts, Wait! When Carlos pushes the handle, the door opens with explosive force. It knocks him back and he hits the wall, yanking everyone forward. An unbelievable gale shoots out of the door and everyone tumbles and rolls out of the hall. When Carlos wakes up, he's back in the tennis gym. Janine looks down at him, tear streaks dry on her face. She holds Yuri, who sleeps. May, who sits nearby, turns and whispers, Is he awake? Carlos's eyes flinch, but he smiles at Janine. She says, You gave us a scare. How are you? He moves his hands and says, My legs. I can't feel my legs. Are they moving? Thank you for listening. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is in 20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.